What are you two talking about? Oh, nothing. Just the end of the world. everyone and welcome to Who Pods the Watchmen. I'm Grant and we are extremely excited today because we have an exclusive interview with co-executive producer and writer for the Watchmen, Carly Ray. Now Carly Ray has a fantastic list on a resume of shows that she's worked on. She got her start working on Mad Men. She's gone on to write for shows like Constantine, The Leftovers, Mindhunter, Westworld. And now she's working on Watchmen. This is the second time she's worked with Lindelof following The Leftovers, which she was also a co-producer on. And we are extremely excited to get to chat with her about one of the best episodes so far of the season, episode five, which she co-wrote with Lindelof. And this is Little Fear of Lightning, the Looking Glass episode. I'm joined by my co-host, Clay, and we're going to go ahead and jump right into the interview. We are joined by Carly Ray, who is the co-executive producer and writer on Watchmen. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. We want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's a complete understatement that we're both huge fans of this show, as well as uh, your whole like list of the other shows that you've worked on. <laughs> I've I've gone thank on you. and on <laughs> talking about like Westworld and um, The Leftovers is, I think, regarded as one of our favorite shows of all time. Right, Clay? For sure. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have a great Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. It's always so exciting to hear that people love The Leftovers. I love The Leftovers, and for a while there, I would bring it up, and people would be like, oh, I meant to watch that one day. <laughs> so I'm always happy to hear that people love it. Season after season, it was easily regarded as my favorite show of the year. Me too. And Grant, didn't you try to, I mean, so we're based in Austin, Texas. Didn't you go out to Lockhart and try to get on the show? I, I actually was on an episode, um, but that was... <laughs> Uh, the the church in the beginning uh, where Christopher Eccleston's uh, preaching, um, I was sitting standing outside, but I was just outside the frame of what they cut out, so I didn't actually make it on the show. But I went to a, sh- a shoot. That was that's, pretty cool. That's amazing. But you did. You got to hear Christopher Eccleston preach. Oh yeah, <laughs> which is no small. That's that's no small experience. It was pretty awesome. So we wanted to start off by uh, asking you how you feel about the reaction thus far to the show by the audience. Oh man, I just I'm blown away by it. I mean, I have to say, there's there's always some trepidation when you're in the writer's room and you're a year and a half away from it going out to audiences. Uh, and it's such a beloved piece of material that, you know, you even if you tried to do it faithfully, you know that you're going to alienate a lot of people who already love the original. And, of course, this is a, a pretty big swing, a really kind of... Uh, bold reinterpretation of some of the original themes. So there was no telling. I mean, there were many moments in the writer's room throughout the writing and the shooting of it that were just like, this could land with a gigantic thud. Like We could be run out of town for for doing this to Watchmen. So it is a huge sigh of relief that people get what we were trying to do and um, really seem to be loving it and engaging with it really deeply, which is thrilling. We did a a read-through of the Watchmen comic um, in anticipation, like chapter by chapter, just for our excitement of the upcoming show. 
And we were thinking about like the legacy of that comic, uh, the, the the audience that comes with it, some of the, the baggage that comes along with it, and staking out a new point of view and getting a new audience while kind of trying to still be like true to the original intent of the show. That's got to be like such a delicate line to skate. Like, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a such a strange needle to thread. And I mean, I think it really comes down to just the reverence that. Damon Lindelof is already bringing to the table. No matter, like, we begin with a creator who holds Watchmen closer to his heart than anything else. It is, it is his, you know, seminal work in his adolescence, and then, you know, as he became a writer, he's always held Watchmen very close. So we know that we're beginning whatever we do with someone who loves and respects the material above all else. And then you kind of have to not worry. You know, you kind of have to put aside what the reception will be and try to just be bold and honest and true to the ideas that make, we had a really um, fantastic diverse writers room, people from all sorts of different backgrounds, professionally and culturally and uh, had different relationships to Watchmen. You know, there are people in the room who were, who are fans like Damon, deep seated fans, and then some who were brand new to the material. And so it was just like, let's take all of these perspectives and try to entertain and engage one another in this writer's room and put aside what's going to happen when it goes into the outside world and then just, uh, you know, hope that people get it. So it's, uh, it is, it's scary every day. You kind of do wait in your, in your head as you're pitching story. You're thinking like, oh, God, I can, I can picture two years from now the Reddit <laughs> thread on this particular choice. But you try to just have to kind of banish those voices of how it's going to be received and stay true to the work that you think is interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that kind of takes me to a question here. You know, when you're working on it a year and a half or two years in advance and you're in the writer's room or you're just kind of thinking about it like while you're, you know, driving into the studio or wherever, and then you see it, you know, a year and a half to two years later, have you ever been surprised by an episode? I mean, when you start it, you have your own ideas, perspectives, and a lot of things you probably want to hit on and emphasize. And just how surprised have you been at certain episodes, not just in Watchmen, but in other things as well? I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised. The very first time, you know, when you go and watch the director's cut, even after... Uh, I was not on set during Watchmen because they were shooting in Atlanta, but I was on set for a lot of the other shows that I've done. I was on set every day for Westworld. And even when you're watching it be shot, you can't quite imagine what it's going to be when you then sit down and watch a cut. And then even from watching a rough cut to watching a locked cut that has music, you know, like that can completely change the way that jokes land or the way that dramatic moments unfold. So, you know, no matter how many times I've seen it, when I, when I then sit down and actually watch it on HBO the night that it airs, I'm always blown away by something. And sometimes it's I'm blown away by something that doesn't work <laughs> to me, where it's like, no, wait, that moment, that moment worked in the room and then it worked on set. And now I'm watching it and all, you know, even when other people are saying, oh, my God, I loved that moment. When you've been inside of it for a year and a half, you sort of have a picture in your, your head of what you thought it was supposed to be. Uh, and then it doesn't work. But more exciting are the moments that just really come together. I mean, in, uh, in my episode of Watchmen, the scene of the uh, extra dimensional anxiety meeting, I was so grateful and relieved that it really plays emotionally and not as a joke. Because there was a lot of, you know, we were laughing a lot when we were pitching this idea of Wade going to this basically an AA meeting, but that's about squid anxiety. That's very funny. It's yeah. very funny, but the you know you hope that once you're actually into it and the actors are taking it seriously and it's scored and shot beautifully, that it actually resonates on an emotional level and you believe these people in their trauma. And it was, I was really 
surprised. I've been hoping that it would land that way, but I was surprised how emotional I felt watching it. So that was that was an exciting moment. So leading up to an episode, you know, and I mean, maybe even two or three minutes before, how nervous are you? You know, I mean, it's not like you're, I mean, in a way you're like an athlete who is surrounded by thousands of fans cheering and, you know, you're at the free throw line, but it's kind of far removed because you could just be sitting in your living room watching, but you still know that, holy shit, there's going to be a ton of people watching. I lucked out, I have to say, when you're number five in the run and people are already really loving it, you feel like, okay, you're coming into a warm room, basically. People are primed to be interested in it. People are up for it. It's, I think it would be no, more nerve-wracking if it felt like, oh, people are on the fence. You know, people have watched four episodes, and they're not totally sure that they the shit about any yeah. of this. <laughs> yeah. That would have been more stressful. That would be more stressful. So, it, you know, I, I lucked out. But there's always the moment where, you know, people on the East Coast uh, start tweeting about it, and you're, like, you know, sitting, trying to decide if you want to watch people's live tweets and get a sense. You know, it's hard for me to just receive in a – you know, with fresh eyes, because I, again, like I said, I have expectations of how I think things, think that certain things will play. So you're just sort of braced to see how people who are coming to it for the first time are going to respond. And over the various shows that I've been on, there have been some that I've been more willing to sit and watch reactions in, in uh, real time, and some that are just like, I'm going to, I'll check in on this tomorrow and see how it went. Um, <laughs> so it's sort of show by show. This one, this one was exciting, because I really love um, you know, I, I will sit and watch Tim Blake Nelson do anything. So I was really excited for people to see it. And um, again, you know, people go on board uh, thrillingly with what we've been doing so far. So uh, this there was limited nerves this time. Right. You got to write this episode five, which is primarily focusing on Tim Blake Nelson's looking glass character. Was that one that you like particularly sought out? Did it kind of land on your plate? Like, how how was the process of of getting that, and um, how'd you feel about it? It is one that I sought out. So I came into the room a little bit later than everyone else because I was finishing up Westworld season two, and there was some overlap. So when I came in, there was already some groundwork laid for who Sister Knight was. You know, like what is her backstory? Right. And some of the other characters, where where are they coming from? And Looking Glass still had a bit of a question mark. So that's always an opportunity. You know, it's always very exciting when the showrunner has laid out all sorts of groundwork but left spaces for invention because when you're a writer in a writer's room, you know, that's that's really where you can do the thing that you love. And I have a lot of family in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> and I know a lot of people I grew up in Texas and spent a lot of time in Tulsa and so the idea that Wade is essentially a native, you know, he's a local boy, there's a culture there that's, <laughs> that I'm deeply rooted in. And so I was very interested in, like, who is this guy who has grown up in Oklahoma and has watched all of these changes? How did he end up where he is? What happened? So I started pitching towards his origin story very early. And I was all over the map. There were lots of, there were lots of stories based on people I know um, in Tulsa that didn't quite land. And then this story started to take shape. And so Damon was very excited and sort of like, great. I'm glad someone in this room has been to Tulsa <laughs> and knows, <laughs> knows something about people with those roots and uh, kind of let me really pitch hard in that direction and take the episode. Yeah, we both just loved this episode in particular. We tried to do a recording about each episode about an hour after it airs. So we're pretty fresh off of oh, everything, cool. and we're dissecting everything. We went for two hours just talking about this episode and dissecting things. <laughs> we were, we were awesome. so excited about 
especially just exploring the character uh, of um, Looking Glass. And I would say, like, there's a lot of comparisons between the character and you try and find who might be a little bit of a, a, an, an analog for uh, one of the characters, original characters from the comic. And I think going into this episode, there is some speculation that he might be a lot more like a, uh, a Rorschach character here. And I don't think that when we left the episode, uh, Clay and I really felt that way anymore. I think he had a lot more humanity to him. And, and vulnerability. Vulnerability. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And does, yes. uh, how, how that really opened him up, I, I think it, it was really delightful to see. And I, I guess in, in that regard, how do you kind of feel like Looking Glass fits within the, the, the pantheon of, of costumed vigilantes within the world of, of Watchmen? And do you think that he, in a way, aligns himself with any of the other particular, uh, the original characters? You know, I tend to think of Looking Glass as brand new. You know, I feel like there are many things in this show that have tendrils that reach back to the original and some that are just invention. And the exciting thing about Looking Glass is that he feels new to our show. And his, you know, his relationship to his mask and his relationship to the other, to, to vigilantism, to the, the squid fall, the, you know, the squid landing, um, that all felt like this is a brand new lens on this world. And, you know, that was another reason I really wanted to, I found myself generating lots of story for him because it felt like he was a really fresh territory. And then it was extra exciting to take this new character who's not modeled on anybody in Alan Moore's work and tie his origin story to this very critical piece of the, um, of the original that felt sort of really interesting and almost a little bit cheeky. You know, Damon knew he wanted to have the squid was going to play into the series. And so that was sort of on the table as we started talking about who looking glass is. And it was very exciting to take this totally new character idea and see that through his eyes and see how it affected him. Right. I, I think fear definitely played a central role in the theme of this episode, a, as well as the original comic. What do you feel are the larger um, central themes that differentiate? I, I mean, I know this is a bit of a, a treatise on, on race relations this season as well. It is. <laughs> yeah. Is, is, is that the primary thrust? Because I'm, I'm, I, I feel like we're also starting to see a lot of things about um, relationships between uh, nations and Kind of national identity and things like that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that those, you know, the, the thing that makes the original so important to so many people and makes it so unique is this, it has these very big, deep sociopolitical ideas baked into them. And so, you know, Damon knew from the outset that in doing a version of it in 2019, it also needs to have that kind of thinking at the heart of it. And for him, the, you know, the idea that he wanted to attack with it is, essentially the state of race relations and all of the various ways that you can look at that and that it affects people's relationships and the state of policing and politics and everything. So that is the central thrust. And he, you know, there's, there's already a little bit in the show and it's, there's, it's going to deepen as we move forward about this generational trauma. And that also plays into looking glass. And so, you know, we're coming at it in this, this way of talking, talking about, the trauma that people felt from the squid fall, that's you know, sort of a sideways way of talking about it, but we'll get a little bit deeper into the more meaningful versions of that for Sister Knight and what her, you know, what she's bringing from her lineage. So 
that is really the central idea of the HBO series. We are talking about race. And the other sociopolitical ideas is, you know, national identity. I think that's sort of in the conversation. I think they also, those are just bigger ideas that sort of are a way of looking at that, that core tenet of, you know, race relations in America. Yeah, and I just want to point out that I love that we're having a serious conversation in which the the statement is uttered, the trauma people felt from the squid fall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of awesome. Is, you know, it, it, that when you, you know, you go back to the, the idea of being nervous or surprised about how the episode comes together. And, you know, you want to be able to use the genre element of this the way that all of the best genre material does, which is take a genre lens and talk about something very serious. But in kind of heightened or absurd terms. And your hope is that you kind of get to experience both. The pleasure of, you know, here we are talking about squid, um, intergalactic squid hoax, um, but also let the the deeper, richer, bigger idea land in the midst of all that sort of silly language. Right, right. So when you are working to balance so many things, I mean, right there, you know, you you mentioned a squid fall, generational trauma, uh, race relations, inequalities. We have people in Tulsa. We have things about New York, we have, you know, this interdimensional thing or this outer space thing. You know, if you're writing for like King of Queens, you probably don't have to think a lot about, (laughs) huh, what do I give people to like allow them to follow along and to kind of get it and to play detective. But here you're dealing with so much. I mean, that's got to be really difficult. And how difficult is it to think, you know, whether it's through editing or or the direction it takes or or kind of the way it unfolds, like, how do you do that? And how do you balance that to think, how are people going to receive this? And not only like, are they going to like it or not? But first of all, are they going to be able to follow it? You know? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's difficult. That's a really, it's a really tricky, tricky balance that everyone on the show is engaged in trying to get right, you know, whether you're on set or you're in the editing room, the writer's room, that's a, that's a big challenge that you meet every day at every stage. And I mean, I'm fortunate that I've had a lot, I've worked on a lot of shows that try to do both. You know, I've spent a lot of time on Westworld in that room um, and in the editing rooms trying to balance how do you make sure that we are giving everybody enough information about these, these big ideas and these complicated timelines without boring you and having you change the channel. The Leftovers was very much like both, we want to talk about these relationships between these characters and the kind of absurd things that they're doing. They're going to Australia. He thinks, you know, Kevin thinks that he's the savior. Mm -hmm. All right, maybe he is. Uh, He needs to go to the underworld. But also we're talking about grief, you know, and unexplained trauma in that show as well. So it's just a constant conversation in the writer's room of, how to do both. And then when you're looking at a draft, are you doing both? And it it really comes down to just, you know, trusting all of the really incredible creative professionals around you and seeing if they're entertained mm-hmm. and seeing if they understand and seeing if they're thinking deeply about the things that you were hoping would be stoked by, by the draft. So it's, uh, it's a lot of push and pull and a lot of just listening and trying to be honest uh, about whether or not something is working. And then really putting in the effort to go back and rework it as many times as you have to to get the balance right. Right, right. And so how do you think your, you know, writing style or method has changed since you first started doing it, since Mad Men or or even before? I mean, I really was sort of forged in the fire. (laughs) You know, Matthew Weiner is is, um, just one of the very, very best at it, of having a show that you are, you're just so engaged in an emotional level, and then you realize you know, you could realize after you're done in your in your two hour conversation immediately after the show where you realize, oh, there's actually all of these really interesting things being said here about anxiety and ambition and paranoia. Um, 
So it's how I was forged, which is great. For my very first job, that was expected of me to be able to do both, you know, to be able to write scripts that kind of manage both of those pieces of information and emotional investment. So, you know, I don't know. I, every time I sit down and write a first draft, I'm convinced that I didn't get it. <laughs> so I don't, I hope that I'm getting, getting better and better at, at getting it down faster. But you always look at a draft and be like, oh, there's a lot of thought. There's a lot of really interesting things in here that, you know, someone could write a thesis on, but I don't give a, sh- you know, I'm not make. I've lost the emotion. Mm-hmm. You're just sort of, you know, you're giving me a TED talk was a thing that <laughs> has come up on a couple of shows as a very gentle criticism of like, I feel like this is a TED talk and now I need you to tell me a story. Wow. Um, so, I mean, ultimately I want to start with the story, tell me a story that engages me and then go in and layer in, you know, deeper ideas that they aren't coming through in the story that you're telling. But I do think getting emotional investment first is how you open up an audience to even receiving any other ideas you want to try to smuggle through. Given you've worked on a lot of in a lot of writers' rooms, what do you think is, if anything, is particularly uh, unique about the Watchmen writers' room and just the development of this show, the process? Well, yeah, every writers' room is different. And I will say I love being in a writers' room with Damon. I loved being on The Leftovers. I was excited that he asked me to come back for Watchmen. The Watchmen room has had a really strong drive towards consensus. You know, there are writers' rooms where the showrunner is king and everyone will sort of pitch in a certain direction and then the showrunner will decide, you know, yes to this, no to those six things, this is the direction we're pushing in. And that's fine. That's a very standard way for and you can make great television that way. But Damon really wants, you know, the, the jury panel to weigh in and argue it out and disagree and, you know, get to a place where everybody's really engaged by an idea, even if there are people who don't love it, but are having a really strong negative reaction to it. He wants to hear that. So there's lots and lots and lots of just conversation around the various story ideas, which is, you know, that that can be a really incredible artistic experience uh, when there's just like time and space. It was a really long writer's room and there's just time and space before you ever get a word on the page to really look at every idea, every story concept, and every pitch from every angle. Then even when you're outlining in Watchmen, there's just a, a, a real collective involvement outlining in a detailed way. There are writers' rooms that I've been in where the room generates a pretty loose outline, and then the writer goes away and really deepens the draft. But again, there was a, a really a drive towards every voice being heard and contributing all the way down to the, to the details of every episode. You mentioned that sometimes you will watch the show right as it airs. Sometimes you'll hide, but sometimes you'll watch it right as it airs and you'll like look at reaction. (laughs) And I'm kind of curious on that end, do you end up seeing some of the, I guess, uh, crazier theories people are throwing out there about stuff? And are you just like, oh, that's close or what? That's so bonkers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love, I really love that, that stuff. I love, uh, I'm both impressed when people get things, you know, or people guess things right. Like, you know, oh, they know they actually have figured out what's going to happen in a handful of episodes. But I think I love it even more when there's a really compelling batshit theory. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're not doing that, but maybe we should have. Like, that's an amazing uh, imagination that this person is bringing to the viewing of this show. You know, that was always fun on Westworld and it has been fun so far on this one. And I think as the season continues, I'm starting to see more and more fan theories, especially, especially after last night, which kind of tried to drop answers that just raise more questions. Right. So 
um, I'm excited to see the next couple of weeks how how crazy the theories get about the finale. I love I love reading those. I mean, I had, I had read a theory that was putting out the idea that Wade was actually he actually thought he was a squid. And he, um, he, his whole his whole thing was that he's secretly a squid and he wears his mask because he's hiding himself his squid face that he sees in the mirror. And I was like, that is so crazy. But then I started thinking about it. I'm like, it could happen in this world of this show because like there doesn't seem to be boundaries. And it's so great. I mean, that's a great that's a great feeling when you feel like the show could actually support that kind of reveal. I take that as a compliment. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. Anything that seems so far fetched, it's it's just a a creative writing exercise away from b- being real. It seems. Yeah, right. On that note, I, I, we're not trying to go like too much into um, a lot of the the particulars, but there's one thing that uh, Clay and I found ourselves kind of um, debating on the last episode, which I, I wanted to ask you about. There's the commercial, the New York mm-hmm. commercial uh, advertisement, and after he watches this, he tells them that the people in the room didn't like the commercial despite them seeing that what they thought they did and i was curious if looking glass or we were curious if he if he lied to the marketing group because he was projecting or if they genuinely didn't or if that even that was a discussion oh that's i mean that's really very very interesting i mean there's the whole episode really uh, wants to look at looking glass's ability to read the truth off of uh, off of other people and not not admit the truth about himself, you know? And here he is someone who's very good at discerning when people are lying and he can't quite process his own trauma and the way that it manifests in his, you know, his attraction to certain women, the mistakes that he makes in his waking life. So my instinct in writing that was that he's correct. He's able to identify that these people None, they're all terrified. None of them are going to go to New York, but they're going to lie about it. They're going to put on the sheet that they're totally fine because they don't want to have to cop to it, which is kind of his story. He's saying that he's fine. He's pretending um, to other people that, you know, he's wearing the mask and he's basically able to look through the mask that these guys in this room are, are wearing. Uh, but it is very interesting. I feel like, you know, every, those interpretations are valid. I think that that would be an interesting conversation to have with Tim Blake Nelson. Right. <laughs> he might have a different might have a different take on that. I think that's a, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. I can only tell you what my instinct was, but the character, Tim was so good. He's so good at really fleshing out the nuance of Wade's inner life and filling in all of the, the psychological complexity to that guy, that character, that he could have a more interesting read on it. And then there's obviously the Adrian Veidt storyline, how that is stitched into each episode. <laughs> It's the black freighter, essentially. Yeah. But I'm curious, as far as the writing of that, like, was that kind of mapped out in advance of you working on it? Since uh, my understanding was a lot of his particular storyline had to be um, mapped out in advance because it had to be shot first. Is that correct? Yeah. So a lot of those scenes were written independently of the episodes that they eventually landed in for the for the logistics of production with Jeremy Irons. So that was kind of mapped as, it, and I, as I think it sort of had to be sort of mapped, even if we didn't have production logistics, it was mapped as its own arc and as its own, kind of its own little movie. And then it then got integrated into the scripts of the main narrative as they were being written. So when, when it's integrated into the script, I guess you, you look for the smoothest ways to transition a scene 
from what's going on in the, I, I guess in this case, the the Looking Glass narrative into um, the the wily coyote adventures that are going on with uh, Adrian Veidt. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're just, yes, that's right. Cause, because there, there wasn't any prescribed way for it to fit into any given episode in the main, in the main arc, the main story. So, yeah, you knew that this, this is the scene that needs to land in this episode just because it's the way that they're going to work for the season. And as you're telling, as you're pitching and outlining the, the Wade story, you're kind of keeping in the back of your mind that that needs to fit somewhere and find a, find a good way for it to land. Right. So does the plot that's already kind of wrapped into this episode's exploits of of Adrian Veidt thematically also inform what you want to do writing the Looking Glass episode? Like, are you trying to draw to a degree some parallels there? Yeah, I mean, it, I don't think everyone, anyone leaned on it too hard because there's you don't want to have too narrow of a lane to explore for the main narrative. But yeah, I mean, I think that there was, that's always a jumping off point because we knew that that was material that was going to sit inside of this episode. You want to look at that and see what you have to play with and see how it applies to the story you want to tell right. in the main show. Thinking about this project and then also, you know, some other ones as well, you've taken on like a lot of different kind of genres and time periods and things like that that have really distinct features to them. I mean, whether it's clothing or the way people speak or, or, or everything, you know, whenever you are, before you even approach the writer's room, how are you kind of getting familiar with that? I mean, are you just on Wikipedia and doing like late night internet research like everybody else? Are you watching movies, reading? Like how, how do you kind of get into that feel? All of the above. Yeah. All of the above. And it usually starts the second that you're in the writer's room. You know, day one is always everybody starting to talk about what the research resources are going to be. And, you know, I uh, when I did Mindhunter, I was in a Wikipedia rabbit hole, probably to the detriment of my health and sleep <laughs> for like, you know, night after night after night, just like down a serial killer rabbit hole and watching, of course, watching all of the movies. And, you know, then you have something like Mad Men, which had a researcher sitting in an office outside of the outside of the room and any resource that you could ever possibly need this, this person could source, you know, old magazines and old advertisements and old timetables for when flights were coming into JFK, like, you know, there was such rigorous research on that show. So I went down all sorts of rabbit holes. It was like having a 1960s library at your, um, at your fingertips. And then for the more the genre stuff, like coming into Westworld was interesting because I had come out of a series of shows that were very rooted in the past. So you had material that you could go and look at. What did everybody look like? You know, what were they dressed like? And, and in, on Westworld, you start reading you know, writing by futurists and going and, you know, reading about the singularity and reading about consciousness. And there were, there were lots and lots of books that Jonah and Lisa had out in the writer's room from day one, lots of TED talks, a couple of interesting science advisors. So I love that stuff because it's my favorite way to procrastinate. (laughs) You just be like, Oh, I'm working. I'm on Wikipedia. And that's, that means I'm working right now. I'm reading this book. I'm watching this movie. You know, I, I love that stuff and, and kind of have to cut myself off from it at, so that I don't, so that eventually I just have to like start creating and start writing and not just be in the warm blanket of research. Well, Westworld must've been crazy too, because you're kind of doing two at the same time. You're doing these, you know, I mean, in speaking of crazy fan theories, a few years ago, I'm a trademark lawyer. So I'm always on, you know, the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And I saw that HBO or I forget who had applied for trademark applications for Samurai World. And some of the other, you know, blank worlds. Oh, wow. So I thought, I oh, wow, okay, we're going to have samurais in a couple of years. Yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, I guess in Westworld, you were kind of doing both the futurist stuff and then also looking back on like, okay, how did the Wild Wild West look? How did ancient Japan yeah. look? So, I mean, that's pretty crazy. That's cool. That was always really fun. The art department boards on that show were just like the most fun mind-twisting thing to walk around and look at because, yeah, you've got like, well, this is how the, you know, the, the um, respiratory system of the hosts works. And then over here is like John Ford spreads of uh, these various landscapes of these classic Westerns. Yeah. And, um, it was always very inspiring to look at all of that stuff. That was a really fun kind of fire hose of, of ideas. Well, Carly, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time talking with us today. This has been a really fun uh, chat about the show. We are loving <laughs> so much of what you're doing here on this show. And yeah, we can't thank you enough. Thank you. I, I have one of my favorite things to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for watching. I'm glad you guys are liking it. I want to go ahead and once again extend a special thank you to Carly Ray for joining us for this interview today. And I want to go ahead and thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. Once again, you guys can help us out by going to patreon.com slash whopodsthewatchman. There you can make a per month pledge and you get bonus uh, exclusive content that we're going to be delivering to you guys where we go into some of our crazier or weirder deep dives about the show of Watchmen. And we will be back on Sunday talking at 10 p.m. Central about episode six. So please stay tuned.